Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, um, April the 14th, 2022. Yesterday, we did an interesting show with a British-based writer, Marianne Seacart, The Authority Gap, Why Women Are Still Taken Less Seriously Than Men and What We Can Do About It. Um, Mary seems to think that the relationship between uh, men and women has broken down, and it's in everyone's interest, particularly men, she argued, uh, for men to take women more seriously, to listen to them, to promote them, and not to treat them as... um, inferior creatures. Today, we're going to talk about the relationship between men and women, but not in the boardroom, in the office, but in the bedroom. My guest today is Christine Ember. Um, She's the author of a really, and I'm borrowing a word from her subtitle, a provocative new book, Rethinking Sex, a Provocation. And she's joining us from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Christine. Um, Is it fair? Are you arguing that in the bedroom at least, or in a metaphorical bedroom, relations between men and women in the United States in particular has broken down in 2022? <laughs> Thank you for having me, first of all. And, you know, yes, I would argue that things have definitely soured. Um, there is, if you ask young people, young women and men, but especially women, something of a malaise in our sexual culture. You know, we thought that we had gotten to a place of, you know, freedom, Um, and a lack of inhibition post the sexual revolution and the feminist movements. And while they did a lot of work, problems are still persisting that haven't been solved. And so I wrote Rethinking Sex to kind of press on some of these questions, ask if we had made false assumptions that needed to be fixed, and also to critique the idea that consent, which we now sort of talk about as a panacea for all ills, is not actually enough to fix the problems we're facing. Is the problem a, a physical or an emotional one? Are you suggesting that those are so, so, again, using a term, intimately bound up with one another that bad sex is bad in the head and bad for the body and vice versa? Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I think that one of the fallacies that we have kind of promoted over the past several decades is the idea that sex is, you know, just an act, just like a thing that people do together. It's like eating or drinking or shaking hands Um any other kind of physical activity, that it doesn't have any more significance than that, any more real impact than that. Um, And I simply don't think that that's the case. And I also think that by treating it as such, um, we have sort of brought upon us some of the very problems that we're trying to avoid. You talked about a malaise. That's what you're learning. Your book is quite empirical. You go out and talk to a lot of people. It's your generation, Christine. Is there... A nostalgia for another period, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 19th century. Do people look back at a a golden moment in American sexual relations between male and females? That's a great question. Um, You know, I don't think that there is any particular golden era for sex. And also, I want to make clear that we've come a long way. You know, the sexual revolution happened for a reason. The feminist movements have happened for a reason. We've made great strides in, you know, treating women's agency as real, um, women's sexual 
pleasure as valuable and, you know, valuing men and women equally, both inside the bedroom and outside. But that doesn't mean that everything's perfect now. I think we are seeing, um, you know, perhaps some nostalgia for kind of the midst of the sexual revolution or feminist movements when it still appeared that things were moving very cleanly forward uh, and that, you know, we could expect more loving, more pleasurable, less inhibited, less kind of everything, um, better relationships to come. You know, we had abandoned the strictures that had held us back and now it seemed like we were free and open to move forward. And I think that some of that sense of possibility is maybe fading a little bit. Um, young women, young men especially, are kind of reconsidering uncritical sex positivity and wondering if maybe some of the norms that we used to have were helpful. On a sort of jokey note too, I've been really interested in the surprising amount of interest uh, in popular culture of romances about the Regency period, um, mm. the Elizabethan or Georgian eras, when you know there were clear rules, there were sort of roles that you could expect and things to look forward to. I've, I've noticed a lot of young people almost um, romanticizing that era. Um, and I, I am wondering what that says about the current moment. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure if that's I'm not sure if that's funny, Christine, or sad. Um, do you think that in a in a generational sense, it's like marriage? You know, if you keep on having the same sort of sex for weeks, days, months, years on end, after a while, it gets rather boring. You need novelty, and generations need novelty too. So, perhaps in the 70s and 80s and 90s, when I was growing up, I still am growing up, of course. Um, our generations needed novelty, needed change. And maybe you've, your generation, and I, and I don't want to, you know, put each of us into boxes, but your generation has reached a kind of, or seems to have reached an end of history moment when uh, you've got what you wanted and now you realize that it wasn't what you wanted. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. You know, in Rethinking Sex, I actually have a chapter that is titled, We're Liberated but we're miserable. Um, and it talks about, you know, exactly this, how um, we had sort of pushed for change in our sexual standards, for a lowering of boundaries, a lowering of barriers. We were, it seems, tired of people interfering in our sex lives and telling us what we could and could not do. So as a change, you know, post-sexual revolution, post-feminist movement, we kind of settled on almost a lowest common denominator uh, to regulate our sex lives. It was this idea of consent, you know, that if you got consent and you had to get consent, it's a non-negotiable baseline and a very good one. Um, everything after consent would be between the two adults who were having sex and nobody would ask any questions. Um, and that freedom would allow us, you know, a better way to, to live our lives and, you know, make us happy in our sexual lives. It would give us more choice, more freedom, more options. And yet in the moment, I think a lot of people are realizing that more options is not necessarily making them happier. And expansion of total freedom is, you know, leaving them a little bit lost. And consent, while again, a great baseline, a great and very necessary baseline, is not enough to make a sexual encounter good. You know, it's enough to make a sexual encounter non-criminal. <laughs> if you get consent, you can say, you know, I did not feloniously assault this person or force them to have sex with me. 
But I think our generation is realizing that we want more from sex than, you know, just what's allowed or what's not technically assault. We actually want something bigger and better, better sexual encounters. And that's why I suggest that we need a higher standard than consent. Uh, Christine, you obviously are American. You've done your research in America. You write about America. Do you think that Americans have a particularly, young Americans in particular, have a particularly utilitarian attitude towards sex and assume that it should make us happy? You're, you're suggesting that now in this conversation and in your book. But when did anyone ever really imagine that sex should make you happy? Whoever thought that and whoever thinks that? Yeah, I, I think that is actually a, a new phenomenon in some ways. And I, I talk about this in the book. We have this, this sort of almost competing dichotomous view of sex in that, you know, as I talked about before, like sex is just a physical act. It doesn't really mean anything. But also in the modern era, we have come to this idea that sex means everything, that having a good life is what makes you an adult, helps you self-actualize. We define ourselves by our sexual orientation and proclivities. And to sort of be a part of the world, you have to be having sex and have to be having good sex. And, you know, both of those beliefs can't really exist together. They're kind of opposites. And yet they do. Um, I don't know that this is a particularly American viewpoint, although I think that the unfortunate sort of lack of sex education in many parts of America has something to do with it sort of not really talking about what sex and relationships are supposed to look like apart from kind of the mechanics. Um, but I think we're seeing this happen elsewhere too. You know, I quote um, from Dolly Alderton's uh, Everything I Know About Love, her memoir, which was published in the UK uh, and seems to express many of these same frustrations with sex and what it was supposed to do and what it has ended up doing for her. In the end, you know, she says, I've chosen not to rely on romantic relationships and to rely on my friends instead. So there's almost a sort of pessimism that, you know, the culture is such that sex and relationships, even though we've built them up to be so much, just aren't working for a lot of people. So in a sense, friendship replaces sex. Um, there always has to be something, if not illegal, Christine, daring, naughty, doesn't there in our lives? And have we got to a position in America where, at least in the sort of metrosexual upper middle class world that you investigate in your book, that there's nothing naughty about sex, which accounts for this obsession with pornography and the illegal in sexual acts, which resulted in all the unhappiness and the problems? Huh, that's interesting. I mean, I think that the transgressive can be exciting that sort of passing boundaries or breaking boundaries can you know add a thrill to any act and people are very attracted to that but i do think that at the end of the day a lot of people want meaning in their lives they want a connection that matters they want sex that matters and is is good not just momentary and for you know something to have meaning that is that is that takes more than a second's transgression um, to be able to cross boundaries? You have to have established sort of what boundaries there are in the first place. If everything's on offer, that is a little bit less exciting, I think, and a little bit deadening at times. The, you, you talk about the 
crossing of boundaries, Christine. Um, the real crossing of boundaries when it comes to gender and sex, of course, is taking place outside the heterosexual world with uh, homosexual relationships and with transgender. Do you think that simply being a, a, a heterosexual these days is just by definition boring? The, the cool kids are doing something else and you get what you deserve if you're still a heterosexual. Uh, you get what you deserve is is a harsh way of putting it. Um, but, you know, actually in the book, um, I do talk about this phenomenon that has been described as heteropessimism. Yes, um, it's a lovely term, by the way. Is it yours or did you borrow it from someone else? It, it's not mine. Um, it comes from the writer Asa Saracen, who wrote about it in um, the small journal, The New Inquiry. And, you know, it's this idea... It's this idea that sort of heterosexual relations in particular have taken on uh, a less playful and more depressive tone. I mean, of course, people have always complained about their sex lives and their romantic lives and how there are issues. But this is something different. You know, Saracen describes it as a mode of feeling that's usually expressed in the form of regret, embarrassment or hopelessness about the straight experience. And it's kind of an anesthetic posture. It's one that people use to avoid fully feeling a sense of almost sorrow for their lack of control over how their heterosexual relationships are going. And it's manifested in, you know, the sort of joking, but not really joking, like all men are trash declarations that people, you know, make on Twitter or the, the sort of like ban men, uh, female dating strategy posts or on the male side in the, the rantings of, you know, incels. And it, it bespeaks this, difficulty that men and women are having in this moment at sort of approaching each other um, and coming together. And I think it it does manifest as heteropessimism. It's like more visible in heterosexual relationships, I think, because certain norms and modes of being around sex and sexuality, including really problematic ones, um, are kind of more traditional and sort of hold a lot more water almost in heterosexual relationships. And there's this assumption that outside of the heterosexual binary, that, you know, queer people, gay people, um, people on, you know, all ends of the LGBT spectrum have more options to do things better. They're not constrained by the same old norms that have held and continued to hold back straight relationships. I was watching one of your uh, interviews and you mentioned um, Andrew Cuomo's daughter, Michaela Kennedy Cuomo, who you talk about coming out as a demisexual. What is all this? Um, and again, excuse the rather naivety of my question, but what is this in your generation about coming out? Do you think that people really take that seriously, that they think that people care about the sexuality of other people? Is this an official coming out thing? It's like, you know, in the old days, I don't know, you got bar mitzvahed or you went to a wedding, <laughs> now you come out come out as demisexual. I yeah. don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, yeah, well, so demisexual is essentially a sexual orientation uh, in which that describes a person who does not want to have sex with someone or doesn't feel a lot of sexual desire with someone unless they have an emotional connection to them. Um, and I mean- It's not exactly we wonder, weird, is it? Well, so that's the thing. Um, it's not exactly weird. Um, 
I think it's actually very normal. You know, a lot of people, when you ask them what they really want from sex is emotional connection, you know, closeness, being responsible for someone and having someone responsible for them, listening, caring, and empathy. But, you know, as I write in the book, and I use this example as an illustration, um, the sort of push for almost an uncritical sex positivity, a sex positivity that says, you know, to be an adult, actually what you have to be doing is having, you know, free freewheeling hookups and no strings attached sex. Like the, the mode adult is actually somebody who has sex and doesn't care about the other person. It's lame to catch feelings for someone. You know, this idea of, of sex positivity was supposed to reduce stigma in a way to make it easier for people to pursue the relationships of their choosing. But in some cases, um, how it's portrayed by the media and in the culture that many young people swim in, it feels like it's almost created a new stigma that instead of not having sex, you should be having sex. Instead of you know catching feelings after having sex or having emotions for your partner, you should not be having feelings. Um, you know, waiting is lame. Um, you know, being in a relationship is vanilla and not kinky enough. And almost the only way out of, you know, seeing yourself as kind of a lame, boring normie, uh, because you want to have emotional sex, you feel like you have to define yourself as something else. Um, you have to be a demisexual. That's different. That's not, you know, lame. <laughs> That's something new. You have to sort of self-define sexually in a new way for what used to be pretty average, I think, proclivities to be accepted as normal. Yeah, and it's particularly ironic, of course, is that Andrew Cuomo's father, uh, sorry, Michaela Kennedy Cuomo's father is certainly got wrapped up uh, in the Me Too movement. The, the one word you haven't introduced yet, uh, maybe it's not in your, uh, in your vocabulary, um, is the L word, Christine, love. Is that a word that we should be using in terms of thinking or rethinking sex? Is it a word that your generation uses? Yeah, so that's that's definitely a word in my vocabulary, at least. And I talk about it a lot in the book. Um, you know, I interviewed, as you mentioned, just a number of young people, women and men, um, you know, straight and LGBTQ for this book. And I asked many of them, like, okay, you you're having these sexual encounters, you're having sex that you don't want, that's depressing or traumatic or sad. What would a good sexual encounter look like? What would a good sexual world look like? And inevitably, you know, they say empathy, care, someone listening to me. And there's one woman I interviewed and she You'll have to read this in the book. I want to spare your, your listeners. Yeah, well, don't give away all the best stuff, Christine, <laughs> unless people won't read the book. Yeah, well, there's this woman who is describing to me like a really intense hookup that she's having, um, intense for a number of reasons. And her partner, you know, says, well, this is just about, let's just not talk about it too much. This is just about lust. And she replies to him, okay, but can we not love each other for a single day? even for the single hour that we're together in this moment, like, could we not just try <laughs> to think about the other person? Um, and so when I talk about consent not being a high enough standard um, for what a good sexual encounter looks like, I, I suggest that we need more than 
you know, giving permission, you know, as you just showed on the screen, we also need to be willing the good of the other person. That's the higher standard that we should reach for. And yeah, we're going to take a break in, uh, now, Christine, but afterwards, maybe we can talk about, you know, I take your point on the consent, but whether perhaps pre-sexually men and women need to sign a little form saying if we have sex, we'll use the L word or we'll be nice to one another rather than treat each other like dogs. We are talking with Christine Amber, the author of a really interesting new book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. It is very provocative and it's about an important subject that many of us either don't want to talk about or don't talk about. And it's a generational book, I think, more than anything else. Uh, after the break, uh, Christine, I want to talk about the difference between young men and women in terms of their relations about sex. I want to talk about the left-right division in America. And above all else, I want to talk about how, how we're going to fix this problem. So we'll be back with Christine Amber, the author of Rethinking Sex in 60 Seconds. It doesn't give you enough time to have sex, but it does give you <laughs> enough time to go to the bathroom. So we'll be back in 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Christine Amber, the author of Rethinking Sex, fascinating new book. She also writes for the Washington Post. It's been a it's a provocation. It's been a provocative book. She's been on all sorts of shows. I watched you, Christine, on Richard Reeves' show, Dialogues. Richard um, is a, a Brookings Institute person, and I know he's writing a book on men's lib. I'm curious, I'm not sure in your conversation with Richard, but in your conversations with everyone else, and in terms of your research and in the book, is the crisis equally for men and women when it comes to the sexual crisis, or are the problems for men and the problems for women different? Yeah, really good question. Um, so I think that 
you know, this crisis is kind of is hitting all over. Both men and women are experiencing what feels like a sexual culture that's not in some ways set up for their flourishing. You know, you've heard um, that we're having a sex recession, basically. Um, and in fact, research does show that we're at, you know, the tip, at least in the United States, of a 30-year low um, in participation in sexual activity, in the rate of partnership, that is like people having relationships um, or getting married. And yeah, so in that case, that that is affecting both men and women. You also hear men, you know, everybody says that it has become harder to date over the past 10 years, but there's actually a larger proportion of men who say that, you know, they find it hard to date or have chosen not to date because they don't think that anyone will find them attractive. Uh, so that's an interesting a lack data of point to think a, about. A, a lack of, of confidence. Uh, mm -hmm. You're also... Um... You also write a, an excellent column for the Washington Post. You had one recently on the right-wing attitude to Disney, and you're quite critical of Rod Dreher, who was on my show. He had a book, Live Not Lives, I found it a rather tiresome character. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I'm curious, in terms of the conservatives' move, fetishization of traditional sex, and the fact that conservatives like Dreyer tend to be very heavily weighted towards men. Is it coincidental uh, that men in America tend to be much more conservative and that the, the challenges of sexual identity, heterosexual identity in America, are falling so much on men that they're feeling more and more under pressure, disempowered, to borrow a, a, euphemism, a euphemism, castrated? Oh, yikes. Castrated is, is a harsh image. Um, who, and, and, and who wants to castrate an American man? Certainly not me. Uh, yeah, I, I don't either. We'd all be out of business, um, wouldn't we, Christine? Indeed. Um, yeah, I, you know, one of the things... One of the things I found really interesting in this research, and I would say that, first of all, I'm an opinion writer at The Post, as you mentioned, and my beat is kind of ideas in society. So I've always been interested in these questions of sort of consent, of ethics, morality, how people relate to each other. Um, and I started writing this book uh, because I was reporting on the Me Too movement and that moment. And one of the things that became very clear as the Me Too moment was rolling out and you know, beyond, is that women were speaking up in public, women were being heard. There are also growing trends in, you know, women's education and net worth in American colleges. Um, women outnumber men as college graduates in recent generations, and it's, it's going up. And I think some of the conservative backlash and conservative male backlash um, and the desire to sort of revert to very traditional norms almost comes out of a sense of, of fear um, that, you know, if women are being listened to, that men won't be listened to anymore. Um, or if women are being treated equally or women can voice their concerns, they're just out there to take men down. Um, and I think there's, so a, fear, there's a, a, sexual, a, a sexual fear, perhaps, amongst conservative men like Drea, not that I'm personalizing this, of sexual <laughs> performance, of not of them not being able to so to speak, get it up in the bedroom and perform properly? 
<laughs> well, I, I mean, I can't speak to Roger or anyone else's uh, sexual <laughs> performance. Yeah, we won't, we, won't, um, we won't talk about that one. <laughs> but I mean, I do think that there is, um, you know, a little bit of a, not a, a physical castration fear, but again, with this loss of understanding of, you know, who is in control and who has power. If women have all of these choices now, maybe they won't choose me. Um, and then, you know, post the Me Too movement, there was, I think, a, a bit of a lack of clarity for men, you know, and this also speaks to kind of the problems with the norm of consent. Okay, it's clear that unfortunately for some men, it is no longer acceptable to lock your underlings in a hotel room and sexually assault them. You know, we're very clear on that being the case, and that's a very good thing. But then there were also cases discussed by so many women, like the Aziz Ansari story, where the comedian um, was outed, I guess, in a, an anonymous um, article about having sort of pressured a woman into sex and having, you know, left her on sort of the worst date, the worst night of her life, she described mm. it. Or even the phenomenon of West Elm Caleb, which is more recent from this year, where um, on TikTok, a number of women got together to talk about this one guy who seemed to be stringing them all along at the same time on Tinder. Mm. Um, and, you know, these were consensual encounters of a sort. But then the men were being called out and attacked for it. And there are a number of young men, especially who, you know, therapists have told me, as I mentioned in the book, feel so sort of unnerved and threatened by this idea. You know, they know not to be Harvey Weinstein, but like, how do you escape being a West Elm Caleb? Like, if you approach a woman in a coffee shop or try to ask her out, like, is that okay? Or are they going to somehow report you and ruin your sex life in your future? And for many young men, um, therapists have told me, this means that they just don't try at all. You know, they, they're they too scared to act, in fact, to ask anyone out to take so that initiative. So the problem, Christine, is not the authority gap, borrowing from Marianne Sieghart's book about women in the office uh, and in the boardroom, but there's no authority gap anymore. Are you suggesting that there, in a sense, needs to be one? Someone needs to take the lead. There needs to be one gender, perhaps, with the confidence to lead the other gender on? Or is that no. uh, an old-fashioned idea? Yeah, you know, I don't think so exactly. I mean, I think the authority gap is is still very, very real and very there, you know, for all the forward motion that we've made with the feminist movement and, you know, the sexual revolution, women are still often relegated to sort of secondhand status in offices and elsewhere and not, not listened to. So they're not um, expected to, sorry to interrupt again, I got get into trouble for that in terms of the authority gap, but they're not expected to take the lead. And yet, in an odd way, the culture is leading them to take the lead. So every everyone's role is confused. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of confusion in this moment, basically, um, and a sort of lack of standards, um, a lack of baselines that we were told would make it easier to figure out this landscape, but instead has left a lot of people feeling lost. Um, even sort of straightforward ideals of, well, just get consent for whatever you choose to do don't seem to be enough to actually help guide people towards the relationships that they hope for and desire. A few years ago, when this show was on TechCrunch, I had um, Pamela Paul, who was then just a writer, now she's the editor of the New York Times Book Review. She had a really important book, I thought, out at the time, Pornified, How Pornography is Transforming Our Lives, Our Relationships and Our Families, back in 2005. 
Um, how central is, in your view, the role of pornography, the ubiquity of online pornography, in terms of these, this, this crisis of heterosexual sex in America and around the world? Yeah, I mean, I think it plays a really big role, actually. Um, and I, <laughs> there's a story in Rethinking Sex that a, a young man tells me about how he was watching porn <laughs> a lot, and that was part of his life. And he realized that his porn consumption had gotten him so used to sort of reacting to an avatar on a screen, reacting to this sort of mythical woman who would do whatever he wanted to, that even when he was in a relationship with somebody he really cared about and actually saw a future with, he wasn't attracted to them um, and didn't sort of know how to act. And he told the story about how, you know, one day he had a sex dream and it wasn't about sex with a person. It was that he like opened his laptop <laughs> and that was sort of symbolic of sex for him. And he woke up and was like, okay, I need to not, I can't do this anymore. This is impacting my life in a real and problematic way. And on the female side, um, I think there are a lot of young women who are experiencing sexual encounters, who are going into sexual encounters that they feel are extremely porn influenced, where the person they're having sex with is not thinking about them, you know, as a human, but sort of as an object as they were trained to do watching pornography. And it's mainstreamed um, acts that would have been considered really extreme um, just a few years ago. And so this is something that's kind of, you know, scaring people away from sex too. But Again, the problem here is that there is not really, because there's sort of no, no higher standard than, well, did you consent or not for sex? Um, there's no real recourse for men or women to go to, to figure out like, okay, what's normal? What can I say is not acceptable? Um, if the standard is just past consent, anything goes, there's no push to kind of critique what your desires are, what you're relying on for sex education. Um, and I think that's a real problem, you know, facing the sexual culture today. We had uh, Laura Kipnis, an excellent writer on the show recently, well, last year. She has a new book out, Love in the Time of Contagion, a Diagnosis. It was a book about, or is a book about love in the time of cholera, uh, not in cholera, of course, uh, <laughs> in, the, in the time of COVID. How has COVID changed this sexual crisis, um, Christine, in America? Is it just compounded everything? The fact that we're all stuck behind our computers, probably spending more and more time watching pornography. Yeah, well, there have been a couple, I think, a, a couple different changes. And I observed this sort of while writing the book because I started researching for it in 2019 and then it came out in 2022. So a bulk of writing time happened during COVID. And one thing I noticed was that the people who I was talking to were had been forced to slow down um, in a time of lockdowns, say you couldn't just sort of swipe on Tinder and be meeting people every night and never have to think about your own life. But when they were sort of sat alone in the house, they had time to ask themselves, like, what do I actually want from sex? What do I want from a relationship? Is what I'm doing getting me there? Um, and so they were kind of pushed to take a look at their lives that they might not have had time to do earlier. Um, 
also at the same time, as you mentioned, a lot of people are, you know, behind their computer screens, um, you know, instead of dating or trying to meet people in person, they were on the apps swiping and swiping and swiping. And I talk about how in the book, um, the use of dating apps, first of all, has just shot up over the past 10 years, outpacing uh, meeting a partner through family, um, through colleagues, through friends, and how it also changes our experience of dating. You know, first of all, as you're swiping through, you see people as, you know, a card in a deck. You're not meeting them. You're just seeing pictures of them and maybe a line or two of discussion. Um, so that's that kind of commoditizes people in our minds and leads us to think of them less as, you know, humans with human dignity than as objects. Um, but also there's much less accountability when it comes to dating through apps versus meeting people in person. And I talk about how, you know, we we were kind of sold the idea that sex would be better if it were more private, if it was more free, if there was less interference from the outside world. And that's obviously true in many ways. But, you know, dating via computer app only and not being embedded, you see people who, you know, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Um, you can say whatever you want to someone. You can ghost them. You can send them a picture of your genitalia and there's no one to hold you accountable. So you're seeing a lot more bad behavior um, that might have been checked by a community or larger shared norms um, if you were dating in the real world. And I think a lot of people for that reason find online dating particularly exhausting and sort of burnouty in this moment. Let's end with... Uh... The issue of consent and fixing this, Christine, you brought it up a few times, the need for more, perhaps formal kind of consent, if we're to rebuild relations between men and women, young men and women in America, lending itself to emotional debt, perhaps even love. How does that actually work? Or how should it work? Is that the core fix in your book, the idea of consent? I mean, it's it's one of the core fixes in the book. So I would say that rethinking sex is kind of in, it comes in two parts. You know, first are just asking questions and being honest about what sex means to us and what we want from our sexual culture. So what assumptions have we made? You know, it's better if sex is private and no one knows about it. We can't, you know, critique our desires. They're just given to us and they are beyond our changing. You know, men and women approach sex and exactly the same way. What about what assumptions have we made that are maybe not true or not serving us well? And then second, I think we can conclude that consent, while a very important baseline is, you know, it's a floor, it's not a ceiling. Um, but that doesn't tell us whether the sex that we've consented to is good or ethical. You know, it punts on the really big questions about what our partners really need, about what our standards should be, about what sex even means, and about what our actions do, you know, on a macro level as we make up society at large. And so I suggest that we we look to a higher standard, which I mentioned before, but I suggest willing the good of the other, which actually is love. Um, it's Aristotle by Thomas Aquinas, and it was Aquinas and Aristotle's definition of love, and not necessarily in the romantic sense. And right. what this means you, brought, is, you brought up uh, Aristotle and Aquinas in, in your excellent conversation with Richard. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, this is a standard that implicates us in not just getting permission, but actively willing that the other person in an encounter, you know, putting their, their needs and their good 
as highly as our own, valuing them as highly as we value ourselves. And it also then asks us to actually look for what the good is. You know, what do we want from our sexual encounters? What does loving the other person look like? And, you know, this is an ideal, of course. This is a standard that we can set for ourselves and try to reach and perhaps sometimes fail or not know fully how to go about it. But even trying for something higher than just the bare minimum would be huge for a sexual culture where the bare minimum is clearly not enough. Yeah, it's this isn't new though, Christine, is it? You bring up the two A's, these two central figures in medieval Christianity, Aristotle and Aquinas. You leave out, I don't know if you left them out, but you, we, we should have included the third A, the A who really grappled with this more than anyone, Augustine and his confessions. He was a young man who seemed addicted to sex and that forced him to rethink everything about his life. So this is a dilemma or an issue that's certainly not new in human history and in certainly in the history of the Christian West, isn't it? No, it's, it's definitely not new. And this is also one of the things that I try to do in rethinking sex. You know, we have moved to this position um, culturally where, you know, the ideal statement is to say, okay, we've discarded repression from the past purity culture. We're over that. We're not doing that. We don't want to be held back uh, by these traditional norms. And there is a reason why we want to abandon some traditional norms, you know, uh, a medieval Christian culture that, you know, would stigmatize women uh, or stigmatize, you know, people of minority sexual orientations that put sex kind of behind a wall uh, and made that impossible for us to access or demonized it. But at the same time, we might want to ask, what have we lost? Are there, you know, if there are traditions with a long history of thinking about what it means to have sex, what it means to be a human, what it means to be good, are there things that are still useful that should not have been discarded? Is there actually still room to talk about questions of, of love, of ethics, of temperance, of prudence in the public square? And so I'm kind of trying to provoke people to that conversation. Um, to bring back that larger conversation of what sex should really be and mean and what does it mean to be good to be had in public. Mm, very good, Christine. I'm not going to make any jokes about sex behind the wall, but your book, uh, <laughs> Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, is, is really timely, relevant, historical, philosophical. Congratulations on that book. I think it's uh, it's going to be, well, I'm sure it already is a bestseller. It's put you on the scene. You're going to have to write more. You're going to be, a, so, you're going to be known as the sex woman. You're going to have to write more about it. You're going to get <laughs> Yeah, what I'll have to write another one. In addition to your new book, um, Rethinking Sex, Christine, in, in mid-April 2022. I hope no Rod Dreher. What have I been reading personally? Yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> I have to say I'm a huge lover of my local library and Good. have a tendency to utilize it for a lot of books, but there's always a, a backlist. So I'm always a few months behind. So I actually just finished reading um, Patricia Lockwood's No One Is Talking About This, which I know is huge last year, but I'm mm. finally getting to it. Um, I just find the way that she sort of describes life lived online, sort of like the Twitter mind it's so tangible and yet so strange. And she really makes kind of the weirdness of that clear. Um, and I also just finished reading Joan Didion's um, essay collection, East and West, 
which is another, she's another writer, nonfiction in this case, who is just so capable of writing short, but almost incisive views of a place or a moment or time that they're so clear, they almost feel like glass, like they're that incisive. So I've, I've loved mm. both of those. Um, and hopefully- Yeah, the thing with Didi and I live, in, I live in California, but you only realize you're living in California after you've written her, after you've read her on California. And finally, Christine Ember, um, author of Rethinking Sex. Who runs the world these days, Christine? Is it men or is it women? Or is it sex or is it none of the above? Um, I think it's none of the above, actually. I'm I'm trying to figure out who runs the world. And today in this moment, I almost want to say just billionaires. You know, we're watching Elon Musk just decide to take over Twitter. We're watching Jeffrey Bezos, who owns my own newspaper, The Washington mm. Post, say that he's going to build a bid a bridge and demand that a country, you know, or build a yacht and demands that the Netherlands just disassemble a bridge for him so he can move it out and then he'll put it back together. I find this really troubling, actually, the question of like one one man or just a couple men having this sort of unaccountable to anyone power. So I've been thinking about that a lot recently.